G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across Southern Australia for this series. We'd like to pay our utmost respects to the First Nations Australians who have told stories on this land for thousands of years. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Southern Australia's grain-growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. This week, I'm joined by Dr Lynn McDonald, a research scientist with CSIRO Agriculture and Food. She joined them in 2009 and currently leads a portfolio of work on soil carbon and low emissions agriculture, which aligns with CSIRO's Towards Net Zero Mission and the Valuing Sustainability Future Science Platform. Her early love of agriculture, well, that can be traced back to the Hill Farm Research Organisation in Aberdeen, Scotland, where her father was working. These early memories shaped her curiosity and interest, and she'd spend time in the veggie gardens alongside her dad, looking at insects living under rocks and just playing in the dirt. She was awarded a fellowship which saw her move to Canada, and I would have thought that Scotland was cold, but apparently Canada's winter is freezing. Her first stint in Australia saw her working at the CSRO, looking at intensive cropping systems in South Australia. Four, the motherland back home in Scotland called her back, this time to study soil forensic science, an area which would ultimately lead her back to Australia in 2009. She now proudly calls Australia and Scotland home, and she's having a real impact into the future of the Aussie grains industry. Let's get into it. Today we're joined by Lynn McDonald. She's a research scientist with CSIRO Agriculture and Food. She joined CSIRO back in 2009 and currently leads a portfolio of work on soil carbon and low emissions agriculture, which aligns with CSIRO's Towards Net Zero Mission and the Valuing Sustainability Future Science Platform. Now, Lynn, I've got to make a confession. I was not a very good science student at school. I kind of liked the ideas of it, but I was a shocker. <laughs> was Are you one of these people that just was gifted with science from an early age? I don't know if I was gifted at science. I think I had to work hard at it at times, but the science and nature side of my education really captured me. I do remember being told by my chemistry science teacher that I was destined to be a scientist because my spelling was so bad. (laughs) (laughs) We had, the whole class had been given a punishment exercise of lines. So, you know, you're right, I must not do X, Y, and Z, or I must study harder, whatever it was. And on every line, I had a different spelling mistake. Well, I feel sorry for you because I'm looking at the bio that I had in front of me and I probably shied away from it. But if I look at it, it talks about your vast and diverse career experience, not just here in Australia, but back home in Scotland and Canada, looking at areas such as soil carbon and microbial processes, soil physiochemical constraints, biochar as a soil amendment and soil forensic sciences. So you would have had your fair share of tough to spell words, I reckon. (laughs) They're hard enough to say. I much prefer to draw a picture and have a story around the picture or a diagram as opposed to paragraphs and pages of words. So very much a visual thinker and yeah, try and keep that text down. I love that. 
Now tell me and tell our audience, whereabouts is that accent from? Whereabouts in Scotland? Oh, my accent's non-typical. Um, so I often confuse people in Scotland now. I grew up outside Edinburgh, a little place called Pennycook, and then moved to Aberdeen when I was about 15. I guess since leaving Scotland in about 2002, I think my accent's probably mellowed a little bit. I certainly talk slower than I would back home. And that's so that, you know, people understand me and don't get um, too confused with some of the little words that Scottish people use. Slowing it down for us. So a question for you, where's home? Australia? Scotland? You've been a bit of a traveller. I think I'm lucky enough to have two homes. Scotland will always be home in my heart in many ways. I do love Scotland a lot and um, the culture and the banter with people back home. I've still got strong ties back home, but I am a Australian citizen right now. And I guess I do see see my ongoing life here in Australia. I think it's taken me a, a long time to actually admit that, that the future for me is here. I've done a fair bit of dancing around the globe and, you know, that takes a lot of energy and Yes, feeling pretty settled, feeling pretty lucky with life in Australia as well. I think it's a great place to live. Well, and if you're a summer or winter person, you kind of have the best of both worlds if you do decide that you want to duck to either one of your homes. You pick whichever season you prefer or somewhere in between and <laughs> live around that. Um, I have become a softie in Australia. I do like the warm summer weathers. Yeah, I, when I went back home to Scotland after a few years of being away, I struggled with that winter. Not so much the cold, but the darkness. In Aberdeen, it's pretty far north. Um, and in the winter, you go to work in the dark. Um, and by the time you go home, it's dark again. So by February, I was certainly craving some sunlight. I bet. I don't think I'm cut out for that. One thing I'm interested of, I've been reading a few notes and different pieces about you, but it looks like your career has really been shaped by your passions and your interests, and I guess that curiosity for you as a child. So looking back as a child, Lynn, like what were you curious about and how has that kind of shaped your career today? <laughs> I think that my, well, I, I did grow up around agriculture, I guess. My dad worked for what was Hill Farming Research Organisation, which is um, just or was just south of Edinburgh. And the organisation he worked in, in animal sciences, particularly in upland grazed ecosystems. Um, so on the weekends, we would actually always be out at the research station. Um, there was an allotment for growing vegetables and there was also the animal houses. So come spring, I always remember being in there when they were lambing and feeding the lambs and the like. So, you know, I was surrounded by it from around a young age. At home in the back garden, you know, we'd be outside playing a lot. So in the back garden, I was always picking up the rocks, looking under to see what beasties were there and taking them into the into my mum in the kitchen or making mud pies. You know, it was a very outdoor sort of um, upbringing. And I guess I just loved the little details in nature. Um, so, yeah, the little creepy crawlies, but also just observing how things were working, what was going on. It's fascinating, isn't it? I spent a bit of time in the Kimberley 
last year and we had a period of time where we were alone for quite a bit and I had like quite a bit of time. And I remember like you had nothing else to occupy you except for kind of your curiosity. So like little things like watching the ants and how that they are actually like carrying things and passing things over and the teamwork and whatnot that actually is involved in nature to, I guess, exist and achieve what they want to do was, it's actually extraordinary. That's exactly it. You and I would get on well in the outback. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd say I've I've got a very short attention span, Lynn, but yeah, after an extra bit of time of solitude, it's amazing where you see your mind going. (laughs) How much of an influence did that time at the research farm have when it came to looking at the years beyond school and what the things would be that you'd actually then pursue? Look, at the time, I probably wasn't aware of how big an influence it it had. But um, at school, I chose to do the three sciences alongside geography as well. So, you know, there was always that element coming into to what I chose to do through my school. And then at the end of school, I have to admit, I had no idea of what I wanted to do. So, you know, what better thing than to give you a bit of time to think about it than to go off to university with a sort of broad notion of doing studying biology. And that is probably the extent of my thinking. You know, when I left school, I enjoyed those biological sciences alongside the geography side, so the landscape side. So I went to Aberdeen University where their first two years of studying was actually very broad. You didn't have to pick which subject area you were going to specialise in. So I did a fair mixture of um, subjects and (laughs) discovered there was a course on soil science, which I took and was probably pretty inspired by the enthusiasm of the lecturers compared to perhaps some of the biochemical sciences or the biotechnology courses, our soil science lectures would come bounding into the lecture theatre with lots of energy and enthusiasm. And, you know, they'd really engage with students. The classes were smaller, so I think they had opportunity to do that. And then it was not just the, the lecturing side, but the practicals or fieldwork side was incorporated in as well. So it wasn't just your very dry learning environment. So I think that really inspired me as well. Great bunch of people at Aberdeen. It's amazing, isn't it, just how much of an influence either your school teachers or your university lecturers can have around shaping the pathway that you actually go down. And it really is based off how you can relate and and interact with them. I would say that that way of interacting is still something that I look for today. So when I am collaborating or working with colleagues, I need to find that creative side between people. It's something that I describe as bounce. You need to be able to bounce around a rough idea and not be particularly wed to it to allow it to shape between bringing together different people's ideas and perspectives. And if you're doing that with the right people, to me, it just bounces. It's almost like the ball bouncing around the room. It starts as a rough idea and goes off in random directions. But over time, it takes shape and you're actually able to aim it and bounce it between people a lot um, more accurately. 
And that to me is science. We don't start in the right place, but hopefully we end up with a gem of an idea. Was it obvious to you what pathway you'd go? So coming into university, you weren't so sure about where you'd go or or what it would actually look like. Once you landed in the soil science space, was it really obvious the pathways for you into professional life? I certainly had the craving to do more learning, but I don't think that I gave my career path a huge amount of thought in the early days. I think that I took advantage of opportunities that came my way. And at the end of my undergrad, I'd interacted with a few of the researchers fairly well. And there was an opportunity to continue studying and do a PhD. And that the topic interested me. So there was the interest in doing some research around that topic. And I suspect there was also a slight stalling tactic. Am I ready to make a decision around what sort of career I want? Am I ready to take on a job? And at the time, again, that opportunity to do some more learning won out. Yeah. At what stage do you think that stalling tactic kind of, so you went and did more learning, but that stalling tactic, at what stage did you find I'm going to use the word confidence. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but that confidence to go, okay, this is the direction we're now heading in and and started to pursue something beyond the study. So, yes, at the end of my PhD in Scotland, I did have itchy feet and I was giving it more thought. Where to next? What am I going to do? Where is this headed? And I certainly felt it was time to leave Aberdeen and take on new challenges elsewhere. And I think at that point, there was a lot more thinking about, all right, am I going into a research career? What is that going to look like? Is it going to be a series of short-term three-year jobs? Yes. (laughs) Am I comfortable with that? And at the time, yes, I certainly was. The opportunities, again, to go out there and experience a a different culture, I think I was pretty lucky with that. And it certainly was solidifying more in my mind that that research side of a career in agriculture was a big driver for me. On that, studying with a focus on climate, greenhouse gases and soil, why was agriculture the pathway versus other potential industries for you? What was it that really sucked you into it? The combination of the type of work that agriculture allows you to do in research. It's not just in a lab. It's not just in front of a computer. I love getting out to the field and also interacting with the ag community. I mean, farmers in particular are some of the most practical problem-solving people that I think I've come across. So being able to combine that type of thinking and that approach to land management along with the science, to me, has been really important. I knew that I didn't want just a lab a lab research career, and equally sitting in front of a computer for the week is just not my cup of tea. I need to get out and about, dirt under my fingernails, <laughs> that sort of thing. And I think also, you know, the important role that agriculture plays in the world. I think that The agricultural community have huge challenges that they're faced to deal with. 
you know, not only only feeding our population, but it's often they're at the, the front line in terms of how some of our policy changes impact how they do their work, what they can use, what they can't use, our societal expectations around how our food is going to be produced, um, particularly, you know, under changing climate and to ensure that long-term sustainability. To me, the central role of our food producers, it is just so important and so many opportunities to really look at how we improve production systems and protect the natural resources associated with it. I couldn't agree more. A question I'd love to know, when you think of agriculture, what do you think of? Like as in, yeah, I'm trying not to to lead the question too much with my own biases, but when you think of what is involved in agriculture, what actually comes to mind for you? Fields. Or sorry, what we call paddocks here. <laughs> so in Scotland, I guess I was surrounded more by hilly landscapes and grazed agricultural ecosystems. So green rolling hills, <laughs> sheep, and then on the lower slopes, you start to get the more grain production or veg production um, coming into play. I do soils come to mind because I guess to me when I visualize the landscape the agricultural plants or the livestock are always sitting or standing on that soil layer and that you know comes from my comes from my background but I do notice the soil types and what that supports in terms of the type of agricultural that sits on top of it. I think these days having been in Australia for a few years. I'm not going to count them. The agricultural landscapes that come to mind are a lot more extensive. They're bigger. And that I found really quite noticeable when I first arrived in Australia. You know, arrived here in Adelaide, drove, I think, two hours inland and jumped out in a farmer's paddock where the soils were incredibly sandy. And my first thought was, have we not just driven two hours away from the coast? And then, you know, you start to look at the landscape and what that is producing. And it's actually quite incredible, the production that we can get off some of these fragile soils. And it's because the extent to which they're looked after and managed to maintain that productivity. But the other notable difference was I couldn't see the edge of the paddock. You know, in Scotland, if you stand in a paddock, you'll see the dry stone walls surrounding it or the the fence line and here in Australia just because of the scale you're right in the middle of a sea of crop and you don't necessarily see the bounds of where that um, paddock ends. You spent a bit of time in Canada as well though so surely the Canadians like farming system is similar to Australia here? Yes that's true. The difference I suspect with my experiences there in Canada was that the research station was on the edge of a small town and they were surrounded by their own long-term trials. So most of that work that we were doing, we would just be right on the doorstep of the research station. We weren't actually interacting with the grower community. 
nearly as closely as it happens here. So the difference here is that, you know, my office is down on, on the Wake campus and a field day, we're actually going out for the day. And those research trials are on active farms where the farmers have allowed researchers to come on and implement trials on their land. So that connection between real world farming and the research to me is a lot stronger here. And I don't know if that's just a time thing and if there's more connection in Canada these days, I suspect there is, but it's certainly something that I really enjoy about the Australian research way of work. It's a lot more integrated. Which is fantastic because that's obviously where we, that's the purpose behind the research, isn't it? To see it applied at broad scale for those changes to actually come to fruition. Yes. Keeps it real too. Yeah, I bet. Keeps it nice and challenging too for you, I'd reckon. Yeah. (laughs) What else did you notice about Aussie agriculture, I guess, especially the grains industry? The passion, I think, of growers to actually interact with researchers and the willingness to have researchers on farm. The other thing that I think differs is there is, and maybe this is just as my research interests have matured and developed as well, but I feel that there's a bigger sort of systems approach to the research that's done here. And by that, I mean, in Canada, you know, it's very much focused on greenhouse gases and the processes involved with those emissions. I was a lot less focused on the knock-on consequences that that has on productivity, on weed management, on disease management, whereas that systems approach here is embedded in a lot of the research that's done. And again, you know, that's really important. For ensuring that any research can be taken out and applied more broadly within farming systems, because there's better understanding of the knock-on consequences that there will be. Yeah, definitely. So you're working with CSRO here in Australia, weren't you? Uh, Yes. And then you decided, I'm going to try my hand at a joke here, but you then basically went back to Scotland, didn't you, to study soil forensics? which feels a whole lot more like CSI than anything. But what on earth is soil forensics? And can you tell me a little bit more about that, Lynn? <laughs> yes, I took a little bit of a side detour and went back to Scotland to develop methods for soil forensic science. So essentially, soils hold a lot of signals or clues around where they have come from. And often in criminal cases, there is soil evidence. So you'll have soil stuck to a shoe or or soil on a spade that's been used in some hideous crime. And it actually holds a lot of information to help the investigation discover where that spade or shoe has been and whether or not that relates to a particular crime site. So traditionally, in soil forensic science, the material will be analysed and you could look at the minerals within the soil and then determine that, you know, it comes from a particular geographic sort of boundaries. Or you could look at the pollen. Um, So the plant pollen will tell you an awful lot about what vegetation will have been round about. 
But the issue that the justice system in the UK was dealing with was that they'd get to court cases and they'd have one forensic scientist pitted against another. And they'd be arguing different things because they used different techniques. So in many ways, they were trying to help investigations, but you could always find a, a counter story, perhaps. So the project was really looking to take more of a science-based approach to forensic science. So used soil databases that we have to put those probabilities on the evidence. And in particular, they were looking to try and automate some of the analysis. So the way that pollen analysis um, occurs is there's a lot of microscope work, many hours looking to identify these pollen within the sample, whereas there are other signals of vegetation which can be extracted from the soil and profiled much like a fingerprint. So we were looking to combine some new methods with the traditional mineralogical methods and overlay a certain amount of science probabilities to try and avoid this situation in the end in court where one expert is arguing with another. Wow, that is incredibly, incredibly detailed, but would have been fascinating the different things you would have looked at as part of that course. It really changed the way I look at data. Um, I probably became much less black and white in terms of what data tells us. And yes, it changed the way I tackle my science problems. I'd love to know, coming back to Australia with that level of understanding, is that something you've been able to bring into the ag industry here in Australia? And is it something which is common practice or is it quite a unique skill set to have in Australia? I think I've probably got quite a unique combination of knowledge and approaches. I used to describe myself as a soil microbiologist. I no longer do because I'm studying, I use a lot more aspects of the soil and how I do my research now, not just the biological processes. I think that some of the methodologies here are similar. So what we use in agricultural science in terms of the analytical techniques, that's similar. I think the most similar application at the moment is the growth and in interest around determining provenance. So where our food comes from or the likes and a lot of the theory behind how that's done and combining information from multiple different techniques is based on the same type of approaches as I guess I learned in my forensic years. But in terms of applying that to the understanding of our agricultural systems and how they work, probably less so. I've heard of a business that was doing that in the wool space and they were able to, well, actually, I don't know if it was just wool, but it was, yeah, they were able to, in a jacket, grab a fibre out and then be able to, through the, I presume it must be forensic science, be able to say, well, based off of this, we could say that that fibre has been grown and created in this region, which is just incredible. Yes, it is. There is some really neat work going on in that space at the moment. And it, it helps producers to prove that it's their product grown under their conditions with, you know, low environmental footprints or, or the likes. It's um, some really great technology coming out there. Yeah, that's fascinating. Another question I've got, 
you mentioned a couple of times a little bit about culture, but on the Australian culture side, you've created a mural through, I think it was the Wade Institute. You learned a little bit about Australian culture through some Indigenous Australians, and then they actually got you to paint your life story. Is that right? We had an um, artist in residence program. So we wanted to invite an Indigenous artist on site and for us to learn about their culture and for them to learn about our science. And the idea behind that was to welcome, you know, Indigenous culture and learnings into what we do and to recognise some of the Indigenous science um, thinking as well. But the Wake Campus has some fairly ugly walls in place as well. So we thought it would be a great idea if the artist painted a mural on site based on the discussions that we'd had and our science. So we had Cedric Varco come on site for a year on and off. And he took a slightly different tact, I guess, to what we had imagined. And he invited us to come to painting workshops where we would tell stories and share um, stories. And we learned an awful lot about his culture that way. And yes, we were given small canvases to paint. And I remember sitting there in front of this blank canvas thinking, oh my, what am I going to paint? And I really struggled with knowing what to paint and where to start. But as we went on and Cedric was telling his stories and also the stories that are embedded within their his paintings. Then I started thinking, all right, what story am I going to tell? So I started thinking, I'll tell my science journey. You know, I started in Scotland, um, went through Canada and have ended up in Australia. And a lot of what we talked about was also symbolism. How do we use symbolism within painting to tell that story? So, yeah, it, it was fabulous. We had painting workshops would come back to our painting over you know a number of weeks and continue storytelling and capturing symbols and stories within that little canvas and I think this thing is only about 20 centimeters by 20 centimeters <laughs> but it took me a long time to paint <laughs> and you certainly packed a fair bit into it which we will definitely be sharing it I think if people the GRDC will be able to point people in the right direction because it's just, it's incredible to see And at the end of that workshop, we all went out into the courtyard and contributed to a collective mural. And I think that is really powerful because it brings people together in that storytelling and painting exercise. And I think, you know, Cedric was incredibly generous with his time and his storytelling and his patience with us. And to me, that was just how many places of work can you go into and take time to paint. So I have continued painting. That's really cool. We've got a couple of questions up. One comes from someone who's been on the podcast recently and a question they've got, and I'm really interested in your answer, Lynn, is if you had the freedom to do and pursue one crazy harebrained idea or scheme that you've got, what would it be? And we wanted to put a disclaimer there's no judgment with whatever it could be. A harebrained scheme. Yeah, or idea. Something out there. I think I'm going to disappoint you in this, Ollie. <laughs> can we come back to that one? We sure can. I've got five quick questions which we can ask before then, which might either give you a bit of time to think or, or none at all, but we can see how we go. 
So the fast five, which we're asking everyone, Lynn, what is your favourite grain-based dish? I love lentils, particularly the little black French ones. So in a summer, summer salad for me, yep, lentils, roast capsicum, homegrown tomatoes, rocket, maybe a couple of lamb cutlets on the side. Sounds pretty bloody good, really. Now, who are the three people that you'd love to invite around, past, present, whatever, to share that dish with? Oh, look, for me, that's easy at the moment. I'd like a 3D catch-up with my family. It's been too long. So I'd beam my mum and brother in from Aberdeenshire in Scotland and my sister from the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. And my dad would be there in spirit. He would be in charge of pouring the little um, whiskey dram after dinner. Sounds pretty good. What was your first ever job? First ever um, was probably when I was 13. And I worked for Sweetways, which was a little uh, locally owned newsagent. I'd be stocking shelves, pricing goods, making cups of tea for the boss, that sort of thing. First ag job was Canada, so with agriculture and agri-food Canada. What's something on your bucket list, Lynn? <laughs> this probably takes me back to the cold environments. I would love to see the blue glow of an iceberg. Oh, that would be cool. I've walked across a glacier in Canada, but to me, there's something about those big blue icebergs and how that colour sort of glows. I'd love to see that. That would be cool. Now, what's a question that you'd like me to ask a future guest on the podcast? Whether they've had a pivot point in life, how that came about and what it led to, change in direction or, you know, something like that. Have you had one? <laughs> We've just been through my convoluted story. So I think that I have. I guess I don't necessarily view life and career as a, a linear journey. And I think there's been a few pivots in there and changes in direction, but they do always seem to, I don't know, they have, I've taken on challenges or opportunities when they've arisen. I haven't necessarily had that linear approach. And I think that's good. So the only question we've got, and we can leave it unsaid if you like, is this crazy hairbrain scheme or idea. If there's one, if there's not one, if you think that, oh, maybe you sit on it and maybe come back to us, you can do that. The ball's in your court, Lynn. This is The power is all yours. I do like the question. I am a bit of a chewer when it comes to these sorts of things. I'm going to come back to you guys on this just to make sure that it is harebrained and crazy enough for the listeners. <laughs> we love it. Well, we'll let people keep their ears and eyes peeled for that one and we can share it out through the GRDC groups. So Sounds good. Fantastic, Lynn. Well, thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us and chatting about your story and journey. It's really interesting and Thank you for what you do for Australian agriculture. Well, thank you for the discussion. It's been a lot of fun and it's actually quite nice to reflect back on some of the things I've done. So thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app 
to never miss an episode.